All right. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have one, you should be able to find one in the pew back in front of you. And uh, we've been looking at a very fun section where Jesus is uh, uh, moving towards Jerusalem, towards the time of his death. Actually, it's been happening since chapter 9. But he's encountering a lot of neat situations, telling parables. And this portion of Luke is just really great because it gives us a very composite view of Jesus' ministry and what he came to do. Uh, the title of the sermon might be a little surprising. We saw it on the marquee, Believers Kept in the Dark by God. And you might be thinking, are you sure? And uh, I'm sure. And uh, you'll be sure here in a little bit too. In the Bible, there are some 2,500 prophecies uh, that God tells us what is going to happen before it happens. About 2,000 of those prophecies have already been fulfilled, literally, as predicted. Someone figured out that the chances of 2,000 um, prophecies being fulfilled is 1 in 10 to the 2,000th power. That's one. Uh, that's 10 with 2,000 zeros. I don't know what that number is, but I'm sure it's hard to say. And it's beyond um, what we can really even imagine. It's, it's huge. And you might think that, well, after 2,000 prophecies were fulfilled, everybody would go, well, pff, the Bible's true. God exists. I mean, he knows the future. Let's all repent and follow Christ. But that's not how it works. The world, by and large, is unwilling to believe, and on their own, they'd really, a lot of times, rather believe a lie that allows them to continue in sin instead of believing the truth, which might deprive them of some sin. Romans one twenty five says they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Even though the truth is presented, even though from a believer's perspective, once you have God's spirit in you, you see things as being so clear and just so obvious. And you just want to like, you know, ask that relative of yours that you've witnessed to a thousand times. Why can't you get it? Well, it's because they can't get it. They need the grace of God so they can get it. From the believer's perspective, the facts of the fulfillment of prophecy alone might seem a very compelling reason to believe, but it's not. And why is it not? Because people believe by the grace of God. People understand the scriptures by the grace of God. And our text this morning gives us one such example. In fact, it is an extra shocking example because the people who are in the dark are actually the apostles, believers. Ever since Luke 9, Jesus has been heading towards Jerusalem and, and he's not taking a direct route. He's winding his way there and he's around Jericho at this time and he's, he's preaching the gospel. He's trying to bring people into the kingdom. He knows his time is short. He knows he's going to die. And when you step, step back and you look at what we've seen so far, he heals 10 lepers. And, and then, um, he talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And then he talks about being like a child. And then he talks uh, about the, he gives the story of the rich man, uh, the rich young ruler who walks away because he doesn't want to part with his money. And then we're going to see things about, um, Zacchaeus, uh, the tax collector and blind Bartimaeus that are coming up and when you stand back you begin to realize that luke is putting in his gospel kind of one of every kind it doesn't matter if you are a leper with some disease that causes you to be an outcast from israel jesus can save you 
It doesn't matter if you just have simple childlike faith, Jesus can save you. It doesn't matter if you're a broken tax collector, you know, moaning over your sin in the temple, he can save you. It doesn't matter if you're a rich, young, confident, self-righteous, young ruler, God can even save them. It doesn't matter if, if, if you're a sinner of any degree or any kind. You can be blind, as we'll see with the old blind Bartimaeus, and poor and beggarly, or you can be a very rich and uh, affluent tax collector like Zacchaeus. He saves you. Men cannot save themselves, but salvation is of God, and he'll take you. He will take you. Whatever your physical health, whatever your social standing, he'll take you. He'll take you. And it's important to see this, that Luke is giving us this great picture of Jesus, the Savior of all kinds of men and women, all kinds of people from all different backgrounds of life as he heads to the cross to make atonement for sins. So look at your Bible in Luke chapter 18, the, the verse 31, the disciples have just seen the rich young ruler walk away and, and because he wouldn't part with his money. And the disciples said, well, we've left all to follow you. And Jesus says, well, that's good. And they say, well, what, what will there be for us? And he says, you're going to have many times as much in this life and in the life to come, you're going to have eternal life. And then our text, verse 31. Then he took the 12 aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. The meaning of the statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things which were said. Well, in this portion of Luke, we have three facts about Jesus' death that you should know to give you hope that God is sovereign. He is in control, that God does have a perfect plan in sending Christ into the world to die on the cross. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. Father, we want to thank you for your word We want to thank you for this text specifically because it teaches us some important truths we all need to know. Truths relating to salvation, truths relating to our own life as believers and a strong message even for unbelievers. Father, I pray that as we work through this text, we would see our sovereignty. We would see that you are in control of all that happens. And Father, we would marvel at your good purposes for doing things that we would never think of. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. The first thing we see in the text is the prophecies were right. Know that the prophecies are right. Look at verse 31. He says, he took the 12 aside and said to them. So they're getting ready to head out and the rich young ruler comes up and Jesus then, because there's other people around, he he pulls them aside and says, guys, I need to tell you something. And now, surely when he did this, they were, their interest was peaked and it's like, oh, this must be something important. Look at the middle of verse 31. He says, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and all the things which are written through the prophets about the son of man will be accomplished. Of course, this kind of begs the question, what did the prophets write about the son of man that would be 
accomplished. In, in my library, I have two volumes. One is 700 pages by uh, E.W. Hengstenberg. It, it's called Christology in the Old Testament. And it's just page after page of all these texts in the Old Testament would speak of Jesus. I have another volume by Walt Kaiser called The Messiah in the Old Testament, which does the same. Hundreds of pages just talking about references to Christ. Alfred Edersheim um, said there were some 456 prophecies concerning Christ's coming that help us understand whether or not he's the Messiah. So in other words, there's 456 kind of indicator prophecies to let us know he's got to be the Messiah. Now, Amazingly, and you would expect from an all-knowing God, all 456 of these prophecies came true. And now if, you, if you're thinking, well, that, that's kind of cool, that, then that's beyond cool. That is amazing. I mean, imagine just the, the chances of three prophecies being fulfilled. You know, when you start saying, well, the Messiah is going to be, you know... Born of the tribe of Judah, okay, and born of a virgin, okay, and in Bethlehem, okay. The chances of getting just three right are pretty scary. Professor Emeritus of Science at Westmont College, Peter Stoner, one time assigned 600 college students the task of figuring out the probability of some of the major prophecies of the Bible. For instance, one of the prophecies was Micah 5.2 that says Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. So they did things like, okay, they got conservative estimates of how many people probably lived in Bethlehem at that time. Then they took estimates of how many people lived in the world at that time. Then they divided the number of of people probably living in Bethlehem divided to the total population of the world. And they, they came up with a conservative estimate that only one out of every 300,000 people were born in Bethlehem. So right off the bat, just with that one, you have a one in 300,000 chance. Now, whenever you begin to stack prophecies, the, the chances increase exponentially. And you might be thinking, well, one in 300,000 doesn't doesn't sound all that big. I mean, I mean, it's granted, it's a pretty big deal, but you know, the chances of winning five plus Powerball are one in 81 million. And do you realize that if you drove five miles to buy a lottery ticket, your chances of dying in a car accident on the way there are 10 times greater than winning the lottery. So stay home, save your money and save your life. Remember though, that we're just talking about one prophecy with the one in 300,000 chance, but there are 456. Stoner, for example, figured that the chances of Eight prophecies, this is just eight, eight of them, not 456, eight. Coming true is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one with seven, 10 with 17 zeros following it, this huge, again, giant number. If you aren't familiar with math and you're thinking, well, so, so what, how does that, what does that mean? 
Well, remember we said that the chances of winning the lottery was one in 81 million. Well, the chances of eight prophecies coming true of one individual is one billion two hundred and fifty million times greater than winning the lottery. Or one billion two hundred and fifty million times eighty one million. And that's just eight of the four hundred and fifty six which specifically identify have an identifier of Christ, and yet the Bible has already showed us it's been accurate in over 2,000 prophecies that have been fulfilled. Now, if you're still thinking, well, I'm, I'm not very good at math. And could you like, you know, I'm a visual person. Okay, picture this. The entire state of Texas covered two feet deep in silver dollars. Now, if you've ever, one time I drove, I, I, I flew to the middle of Texas and it took me eight and a half hours just to drive to the border. It's big. So imagine the whole state of Texas, two feet thick in silver dollars, and you've got one of them marked. This is the one. And then you send a blind man just randomly into Texas, <laughs> drop him from the space shuttle and say, when you land, grab it. That that would be the same of chances. Now we have some perspective to understand the magnitude of what Jesus just told the disciples when he said, behold, we're going to Jerusalem and all the things written through the prophets about the son of man will be fulfilled. In other words, God and his sovereignty is going to cause this huge convergence of prophetic fulfillment very shortly in my life. You think, well, well, like what, what kind of things are those? Well, let me just give you a few. The triumphal entry was predicted in Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine and fulfilled in Mark chapter 11 verse from seven to verse 11. Praise out of the mouth of babes is predicted in Psalm 8, verses 1 and 2. It's fulfilled in Matthew 21, verses 15 and 16. The Messiah being cut off for others is predicted in Daniel 9, 25 through 27. And it's fulfilled in John uh, and Luke, both. Um, John 11, uh, 49 through 52. And, you know, all the, all the things have it, but it actually mentions this more specifically. Jesus betrayed by a friend is predicted in Psalm 41, verse 9. It's fulfilled in Luke 22, verses 47 and 48. Jesus sold for 30 pieces of silver is predicted in Zechariah 11, verse 12 and Matthew 26 verses 14 and 15 that the 30 pieces of silver would be cast in the house of the Lord and purchase a potter's field. Zechariah 11 verses 12 through 13 predicts it and Matthew 27 verse 3 and verses 5 through 7 uh, show its fulfillment. That's a pretty complex one. The money would be cast into the house of the Lord, but it would be used to purchase a potter's field. Think about that one. 
That Jesus would be forsaken by his disciples, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. That Jesus would be falsely accused, Psalm 27, verse 12, Psalm 35, verse 11, and fulfilled in Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 through 61. That Jesus would not open his mouth at his defense, Isaiah 53, verse 7, and fulfilled in Matthew chapter 27, verses 13 through 14. That he would be scourged, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, and it is fulfilled in Mark 15, verse 16, and it goes on and on. That's just a little handful of them, eight of them. About 456, just of Jesus, 2,500 altogether of various other things. And so Jesus pulls his disciples aside and he says, guess what? We're going to go to Jerusalem and all of these things that are written are going to happen all in a very short time. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, how could that ever happen? The chances of that happening are just astronomical. They're impossible. As a matter of fact, scientists say that whenever you get to anything happening that's beyond 10 to the 80th power, it's, it's for all intents and purposes impossible. And this is way, way beyond that. And so you're thinking, well, how how could that happen? Because God, in his sovereignty, through his providence and by concurrence, causes all things to happen according to his perfect will. I know you may be thinking, it's like, well, wait, 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 wait. There's some big words. There's some shun and ence words there that scared me. Let's talk about each of these words. Sovereignty. What is that? Sovereignty. As we learned last week, when Eric did his little shepherding moment, is the position that God holds as absolute ruler of all creation. And when I mean absolute, I mean as sovereign as sovereign could be. In absolute total control of all things. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven. His sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115 verse 13 says, But our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. That's why sovereignty is God's favorite doctrine. He loves it. He does whatever he pleases. Now, when you think of sovereignty, think of God's position as absolute ruler. So if God is sovereign, if that's the position he holds as absolute ruler, then how does he affect his ruler? How does he actually do stuff? How does he make things happen according to his will? Since he is in the position of absolute ruler. And the answer to that is providence. Providence. You know, one of the things uh, you'll discover if you read books that are, you know, over 50, 60 years old, you'll find providence occurring pretty regularly. If you read books over 100 years old, it is an extremely common word because everybody knew that God was in charge of everything. But now you hardly ever hear it. So providence is is God is the means God guides everything to fulfill his perfect plan, which encompasses everything that exists. You're thinking, okay, okay. So when you're at the table and you've got teenagers in your house and they knock over the milk, has that ever happened to your house? It only happened at our house once a night for years. Um, you know, when that happens, you think, well, is this the milk? Is that milk part of God's providence? Yes. You go, well, it is. Yes. He said, well, why is it? Because it sanctifies parents. <laughs> and it also hopefully teaches the kids to be more careful. 
Thomas Watson compares Providence to one of those big grandfather clocks. You know, the ones you see sometimes they have the glass front on and they have the big weights and the pulleys and they're kind of cool to look at, aren't they? They have all those gears in there. And when you're looking at them and if you get really close, you'll see that there's a big gear, you know, that's kind of slowly clicking to the right. Then you see a little gear that's moving pretty fast to the left. And then you see another gear that's moving to the right and, and it's going at a different rate. And there's little hammers and little clicky things and, and all these things are all kind of meshing together. Some are going this way. Some are going that way. Some are going fast. Some are going slow. And Watson says, that's how it is in our life. We have all these things, some going contrary to the word of God, some going with the word of God, some are going fast, some going slow, some big, some little, all these little details in our life. But what do they do? Providence causes them all to forward the motion of the hand so that God's plan happens on time and perfectly. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. That word all things in the Greek means all things. Everything. You mean the good things? Yes. You mean the bad things? Yes. I mean all things. He causes that, that makes him the mover behind all things, orchestrating them all to accomplish his perfect plan. Ephesians 1.11 says of believers that we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. This is such a comfort. When you look in the world, this is great to know that God's providence is moving all things to accomplish everything God wants. And finally, there is a certain aspect of God's providence called concurrence. And this is important to know because it helps us understand really the most difficult part of God's providence. And that's when you see evil men do evil things that are contrary to God's revealed will, but yet still part of his overarching plan. And you would be tempted to say, well, if God is sovereign, then how come this happened or that happened? You see, God has created certain creatures with a will, hasn't he? (coughs) Specifically, demons, fallen angels, holy angels, and men have volition, introspection. They can plan things and execute things. And God gave them this ability, didn't he? And he allows men and he allows angels to exercise their will. But at the same time, simultaneously, concurrently God accomplishes his perfect plan. And you say, well, how can he do that? Cause he's sovereign. Last week, Eric used a classic text on concurrence. Do you remember what it was? Philippians two verses 12 through 13, which says, so then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, uh, well, I thought I was supposed to do it. You are. But I thought it was God's work. Well, it is. Well, well, is it God's work or my work? Yes. <laughs> Concurrently, God saves you and you begin to live out your life by his grace. So you're doing it and he's doing it Concurrently. Listen to what Peter 
said in Acts chapter 3, verse 18, Peter's preaching to the Jews. And he says, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he, that is God, has thus fulfilled. He said, okay, so the prophets predicted the death of Christ, yes. And God fulfilled those prophecies, yes. And, I mean, we all know, uh, was Jesus' death predicted? Yes. Did Jesus say that no one could take his life from him? Yes. Does Isaiah say that the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief? Yes. Well, didn't evil men crucify him? Yes. Wasn't he betrayed by evil men? Yes. Wasn't he betrayed by evil men? Yes. Wasn't it their fault? Yes. What? Okay. So what you're telling me here is men are responsible and God is sovereign. Yes. Listen to this text. Acts chapter 4 verse 27. Peter is preaching again. And he says this. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Here it is. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur people that is concurrence god grants certain people freedoms men demons angels and you know what these evil men weren't thinking okay what prophecy can we fulfill next you know the price says the messiah has to die let's kill him and help god out they weren't doing that they were exercising their own will for their own reasons but at the same time the sovereignty of god working through providence and concurrence was fulfilling his perfect plan so that when jesus died they're responsible and god at the same time accomplished the redemption of mankind because he's sovereign he can do that now here in our text back in luke 18 Jesus pulls the 12 aside and says, soon in Jerusalem, all these prophecies concerning me are going to be fulfilled. And the mathematicians figure that when, you know, something gets above 10 to the 80th, it's impossible. And so we know Jesus is saying the impossible is about to happen. I mean, we are way past impossible. Now, you might say, well, so what does this mean? I mean, what, what is the application here? Well, I think the application is pretty clear. God is sovereign. God is in control. God works all things out for his will. And so we need to be glad about that. We need to rejoice in that. We need to praise God for that. We need to trust that though the world may seem to be fall, falling apart and we see those little and big gears going contrary to the motion of what we think should happen, that all of them together are still going to work together to fulfill God's perfect plan in our life and the lives of others. And we can rest in that because if God is not sovereign, we've got something to worry about. But if he is, then we can trust him. Secondly, no Jesus was to die as predicted. Not only does Jesus declare that the impossible is about to happen. He then gives seven details about his upcoming death, which we know from this side of the cross all happened just like he said. These things are things the prophets predicted and Jesus is restating them. 
And so look at, look at our text, look at, um, verse 32. It says, for he will be handed over, literally betrayed to the Gentiles. And just stop there. The gospels make this clear. He was handed over to Pilate and crucified by Roman soldiers. It was predicted in Psalm chapter two, verses one and two, for instance, why are the nations in uproar and the people's devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel against the Lord, against his anointed. There you have it. Secondly, if you look at verse 32, you'll also see that it says that he will be mocked. We know this from Luke 22 verses 63 through 65 and 23 verses 11 and 35 describe Jesus being mocked. It was predicted in Psalm 22 verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man. The reproach of men despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate the lip. They wag the head saying commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And and we know what happened. They all stood around and they all sneered at him and they mocked him. Verse 32 also says, if you look there, that he would be mocked and mistreated. We see, for example, in John chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, that Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and give him slaps in the face. Isaiah 52, 14 predicted this saying, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. And Isaiah 53, verse three predicts, and he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Fourthly, if you look at verse 32, it predicts they will spit upon him. Matthew 26, verse 67, for example, says they spat in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him. And this, you know, I always just, that just makes me cringe. You know, spitting in someone's face is a pretty major insult, isn't it? But to spit on them, slap them and hit them in the face, that's bad. Especially when after you die, you for, you realize that person was God incarnate that you did that to. This, of course, was predicted in several places, one being Isaiah 50, verse 6, which says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Then verse 33 says, and after they have scourged him, Matthew 27, verse 26, and he released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed them over to be crucified. We also saw that in John 19, 1. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, but he was pierced through for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Sixthly, verse 33 says they will kill him. Isaiah 53, verse 8 predicts saying by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who would consider that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Daniel 9, verses 26 predicts that Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And this is very clear that Jesus was killed. Seventh and finally, verse 32 says, and the third day he will rise again. We know that the gospels record the resurrection with much detail. This was predicted in places like Psalm 16, verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor you will allow your Holy One to undergo decay. 
And those are just seven things. Jesus states, he rattles off that he knows the prophets predicted and says all those, these are some of the things that are going to happen. And just think about this for a second. You know, the chances of prophecies coming true is just astronomical, but some prophecies couldn't come true. You, You realize that? You can wait for a long time for a virgin birth. You're going to wait in vain. You can wait a long time until someone rises from the dead after three days. You're going to wait in vain. You see, not only mixed in, not only are there all these prophecies, and not only just the, the mathematical probability, if they could come true, they're coming true. But when you add to that, that many of these prophecies are impossible to come true, and they take a divine miracle, it's just, it would be a miracle for them to come true. And that's why they did come true. Now you might say, okay, so what does this mean? What are all these prophets predicting all these things that would occur in Jesus' death and resurrection? What do they mean for us? Well, I think the biggest thing they mean is God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I think it means that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. I think it means that he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will you not with him freely give us all things? It means that God from eternity past loved mankind, saw their fall into sin and loved them so much. He became a man and died on the cross so that they could be saved. That's what it means. This was no freak accident. God wasn't up in heaven going, Oh no. Jesus is being crucified. What am I going to do about it? Now he orchestrated it all. This Jesus whom you crucified by the predetermined plan of God. God was doing it. And it is a demonstration of his love, his grace, his mercy towards unworthy sinners that he's willing to save us. So make sure you know Christ. Because of all those prophecies concerning his first coming came true, all the prophecies of his second coming will come true also. The third thing we see in our text is know the disciples were kept in the dark. This is the fascinating part. Now, you just got to kind of transport yourself back into time. You're one of the disciples. You've just seen the rich young ruler walk away. You're getting ready to head out. And Jesus says, you 12, come here, come here. And then you all walk over there and say, yeah. He goes, come here, God, let's get in a, a little holy huddle here. And um, I just want you to know, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, the pagans. And uh, they're going to mock me and mistreat me and spit upon me and scourge me and kill me. However, three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, could you miss that? Could you miss that? I mean, you may have a hard time believing it, but you would understand what Jesus was saying. Those are not difficult words. Those are not like huge vocabulary or anything. The question is, so, okay, if that's so clear, then why does the text say what it does? Look at verse 34. But the disciples understood none of these things. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. And the meaning of the statement was hidden from them. Luke says it in three different ways. They didn't understand. They didn't understand. And they didn't understand. They didn't understand. Why didn't they get it? How come they couldn't fill it out, figure it out? What was wrong with them? You know, surprisingly, I read a lot of commentators who said, well, you know, it didn't fit into their preconceived theological notions of Jesus. 
They didn't understand Jesus was going to come a first time to die and later come a second time in glory. And you know what? It's true that it didn't fit into their theological framework. But listen, what would you do if your friend came to you and said, yeah, these things are going to happen to me? Would you go, oh, because it didn't fit your preconceived notions of what might happen to them? I don't know about you, but I'd say, hey, hey, what are you talking about? I guess if they said, well, you know, it's no big deal. I'd say, no, I want to know. What do you mean by that? I would pester Jesus to the end, wouldn't you? I mean, I'd want to know. My friend says, I'm going to go die and I'm going to rise from the dead. It's like, hello, what are you talking about? What's wrong with you? What do you mean by that? Turn back to Luke chapter 9, verse 21. Luke chapter 9, verse 21. Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Christ of God. And then in verse 21, we have this. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. Saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Now, it's not recorded by Luke, but Matthew tells us this is when Peter understood Jesus was going to die. And he pulled him aside and rebuked the Lord and said, hey, this isn't going to happen to you. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 43. Luke chapter 9, verse 43. Jesus has just cast a demon out of a man. All the people are amazed. And then we read, but while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. For the son of man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Kind of like deer in the headlights. I mean, yeah, they didn't understand the Messiah would come a first time to die and a second time in glory. But listen, if someone that you love told you they were going to die and then rise again, you'd get on them, wouldn't you? Of course you would. I would. And so the question is, why didn't they understand? Because they were blinded. They were kept from the truth by God. Verse 45 says, the truth was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. If you look back at our text in in Luke 18, verse 34, it says, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. By who? For what purpose was it hidden from them? It was hidden by the Holy Spirit who both reveals truth and sometimes blinds men to it, even believers. Now you might wonder, well, why would God ever do that? Why would God ever take something like the death and resurrection of Christ and hide it from his own disciples? Golden Heist in his commentary explains, quote, it was necessary for the Savior to warn them so that after his crucifixion and resurrection, they could understand things better and could realize that he was not unexpectedly overwhelmed by suffering and death, 
but that he was fully aware of what was awaiting him and voluntarily paid the full price for the sake of the redemption of man. The suffering and death of the Savior were no fortuitous occurrence or merely the unavoidable result of a combination of certain circumstances. By no means, for from eternity, this had been the predetermined center of the plan of salvation from the triune God, end quote. God sometimes blinds even believers to certain aspects of the truth for his good purposes. You say, well, well, but why would he do that? I mean, it just doesn't seem right. Well, let's, let's just talk about it. Okay, what do you think would have happened if Jesus would have told them this and the Holy Spirit gave them full understanding? What do you think they would have done? The, the, the guy they think is the Messiah, the person they love, now says, I'm going to go. They're going to abuse me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to scourge me and they're going to crucify me. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. And what do you think they're going to do? No, you're not. They're going to pull a Peter, right? Let's drug him. Let's bind him hand and foot. Let's take him up to Dan or Beersheba and hide him in a cave. Let's let this thing blow over. We're not going to let him get Jesus. And they would, would, would mount a valiant effort to try and stop the will of God. And so God, knowing this, God knowing their love for Christ blinded them from the truth for a time. And that's why later on, when you're reading like in the book of Acts, when certain things are happening, they're going, oh, and then the disciples remembered. Like, oh yeah, now I remember. I remember that the scriptures say this, or the scriptures say that, or he told us these things. You remember in Luke chapter 24 and the disciples on the road to Emmaus? You remember that? Jesus appears to these disciples and Luke 24 verse 16 says, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. By who? By the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, well, why would Jesus have the Holy Spirit keep these men blind, these disciples of his, his disciples from under, under seeing him and recognizing him? Well, because he wanted to give them a lecture on the fulfillment of prophecy. And so as they walked down the road, Jesus began to talk to them. And they said, yeah, you won't believe what happened to this Jesus character. And Jesus is saying, oh, really? Go, yeah, they did this to him and this, that. And Jesus says, well, you know, let me, let me remind you what the prophets say. And he began to quote different prophecies that related to the things that they had seen. And he gave them a big lecture on the fulfillment of prophecy. And then you remember what happened right after that? Luke chapter 24, verses 30 and 31 says, And when they had reclined at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began to give it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Oh. But they got the lecture in. And see, if Jesus would have appeared and they would have recognized him, they wouldn't have listened to the lecture. They would have been jumping around. He's risen. He's risen. You know, it would have been Easter Sunday. And they would have been so excited and so distracted that they wouldn't hear him. So he lets them hear the lecture and then he reveals himself. And when they finally realize it's Jesus, he's gone. Their eyes were opened. By the Holy Spirit at God's appointed time. 
There are many other examples in the scriptures of this. There are many other examples of people being blinded, both believers and unbelievers. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 31, you remember Balaam, who was hired by Balak to curse Israel. And it says, the Lord opened his eyes of Balaam and he saw an angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand and he bowed all the way to the ground. I mean, God doesn't show us everything in the angelic realm. He doesn't show us what's going on all the time. We don't, we don't know that. We don't get to see that. He hides that from us. Why? Because he wants us to live by faith. That's why not by sight. You remember in second Kings chapter six, verse 17, when Elisha is surrounded by these armies and they're all after him. And Elisha's servant is really freaking out. I mean, he's going, they're out there. They're going to get us. You know, it's like, look at that. And then Elisha just goes outside and says, Lord, he says, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened his servant's eyes and he saw And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So what happened is, is the servant sees all the enemies surrounding Elisha. Elisha's all laid back and the servant's freaking out. So then Elisha, seeing his servant is very distressed, prays to the Lord and says, could you like, you know, give him a little glimpse of the angelic realm here? And when he does, there's just horses for you, horse riders, horses in heaven and chariots of fire all around. And then the servant goes, oh, I guess we're going to win. And that's exactly what happens. Turn to Luke chapter 10, turn to Luke chapter 10 and uh, verse 21 I think I only preached nine sermons on this verse. This was uh, one of the theological mud holes we got stuck in, but it was a good, good adventure. Verse 21 of Luke chapter 10, at that very time, he, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and had revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Notice here that God sometimes hides the truth from people. Sometimes for unbelievers as a form of judgment. Sometimes because he's going to reveal it later. Sometimes there's a different purpose. We don't even know what it is. Turn over to Luke chapter 19. Chapter 19, which we'll get to eventually. Verse 42 where Jesus says to the unbelieving Pharisees, Luke 19, verse 42, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Notice God is working behind the scenes. This is a case of judgment. Kept in the dark so that they will be judged. So when God reveals the truth to us, when God helps us to understand and see things and opens our heart, that's called illumination. Think of uh, illumination as just turning on a light in a dark room. That's how, that's it. You know, you, it's nighttime. You, you go into your bedroom or the kitchen and you hit the light switch and lights on. You can see, well, the Holy spirit is the light switch for understanding the truth. 
And that is why when you're out and about and, and you're talking with people and sometimes you're sharing the gospel with them and you see in their eyes kind of just this blank there, like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And sometimes they leave and they're just in the dark. And other times you share with them, lights on and they just, they get it. When the light goes on, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit illuminating men to the truth. Now, there's one great text on this. This is the greatest text in all the New Testament. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Turn there. I just want to take you through it really quick because it explains why believers can understand the truth and unbelievers can. And this has huge practical implications, which we'll see in a minute. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And uh, Paul has started from chapter 1, verse 18, talking about his methodology and his preaching of the gospel. This is Paul reminding the Corinthians of how they came to Christ and the means and the, the message Christ, uh, Christ told Paul to use to bring them to, to himself. So this is God's way of doing evangelism. This is God's chosen way. And look at verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And notice what it says. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Wisdom, however, not of the sage, nor of the rulers of the sage who are passing away. Notice the wisdom Paul proclaims was not of the world. He got it from another source. Verse 7. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Notice that the wisdom Paul proclaimed was from God, and for a while it was a mystery hidden from people. But God has now predestined that he and those God so wills understand this information, the gospel. Verse 8, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. The the, the worldly rulers and all their, their education and all their power can't get at this information. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Keep in mind that the experts of the law of Moses and the word of God were the ones who most hated Jesus and were glad to see him crucified. Think about that. The experts in the word of God were the ones who hated Jesus the most. And yet they didn't understand that he was God incarnate, the very Messiah that they had long been waited for. They were blinded from the truth. Verse 9, but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen or ear heard... Uh, ear not heard, or should have not even entered in the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. This verse specifically referring to God revealing truth of his word to those who beforehand never had the truth enter into their hearts. And if you know Christ, you know this. You know this every day when you read your Bible. You know, when you first come to Christ, everything's new, isn't it? You just start getting it. It's like, I get it. I get it. It's like, oh, this is so cool. Oh, I never understood this. Oh, so that's why this is that way. But even after you know Christ, you know, you've read through a book many, many times and you're having your quiet time and you're just sitting up drinking some coffee, reading a couple chapters of the Bible before you go to work and you're reading something and all of a sudden it's like, wow, look at that. And there's that thing you've never seen before. That cool truth that you never saw. You've read that book 50 times. You've never seen it before. Look at it right there, right there. And all day, sometimes all week, sometimes for months and months, that one little fragment, that one truth just encourages you and encourages you and you're just, yeah. 
And notice verse 10, it says, for to us, that is believers, God revealed them through the spirit. These truths came through the spirit for the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The Holy Spirit is the agent of illumination. The Holy Spirit knows the thoughts of God. And he in turn reveals some of these thoughts to men. He says in verse 11, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man, which is in him. He's saying, you know what? The person who knows your thoughts is you. You know what you're thinking. Well, middle of verse 11, even so the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. So just as you know your thoughts, so the Holy Spirit knows God's thoughts. Look at verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. This is the one, one of the clearest statements in all the Bible on the Holy Spirit's work and illuminating believers to the truth. Right there, verse 12. Verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom. Notice. They didn't get it by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. In other words, the Holy Spirit teaches believers the truths of God's word. But the natural man, he says in verse 14, which is his reference to unbeliever, but the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The natural man, because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit's assistance, he doesn't get it. He just doesn't get it. You know, it's like somebody sells, sends you this email or something and it's got some file in it and they say check this out it's really cool and they forget you're you're a a pc guy and they're a mac guy and then you try and do it and it doesn't work oh it's just sorry and then it says what program do you want me to use to open this say i don't know and you don't even have it it's not even the list and that's how it is for an unbeliever who doesn't have the spirit of God. When, when the truth is heard, yeah, they hear the words, but they don't experience the power of it. They don't have it affect their lives. It doesn't wow them. It's just data. And they go, what? And you're going, dude, man, it's awesome. And they're going, what? And then you're thinking, what is wrong with you? The same thing that was wrong with you. Behold, the Holy Spirit revealed the truth to you. Now consider the implications of the doctrine of illumination. First, we must never forget that only the Holy Spirit can reveal the truth of God to people so that they hear the words, understand the words, and are impacted by those words. That is the work of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone. You can't do it. Your arguments won't do it. Your reasoning won't do it. Your intellect won't do it. You can badger somebody all you want. You can't badger them into salvation or badger them into sanctification. God's got to do it. Secondly, no amount of human arguing and illustrations when we're preaching the gospel is going to bring somebody to Christ. What this means is is when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you better pray. That's what it means. You need to ask God to cause his word to be made known to people who don't understand it. Not only that, when you're reading your Bible, ask for help. When you're listening to a sermon, ask for help. When you're reading a good book on the the scriptures, ask for help. Whenever you come in contact with the truth, since the only way you can really understand and be impacted by that truth is the help of the Holy Spirit, always ask the Holy Spirit for help so that you can understand and be impacted by the truth. Don't fall into the error that many do when they come become pretty proud at their evangelistic technique. 
how many verses they've memorized, you know, how many things uh, uh, that they've done um, to prepare. And then they're trusting in their method. They're trusting in their preparation. They're trusting in them rather than God, the Holy Spirit, to bring that person to salvation and cause them to be born again. I love the story of Spurgeon who grew up in a Christian home. His father's the, a preacher. His grandfather's a preacher. He would go to his grandfather's house and he was so bored there. His, his grandmother said, well, why don't you start memorizing hymns? I'll give you a penny a piece for every hymn you memorize. And he said, okay. So he memorized the entire volume of the Psalms and hymns of Isaac Watts. That's a lot of hymns. As a matter of fact, he memorized so many the first week. She said, well, I'll give you a penny for five hymns. And then it was a penny for 10 hymns. And by the end of the summer, he memorized the entire volume. He said from that day on, whenever he was preaching, he could just, any thought, he would just attach a hymn to it. It just come out. He was brilliant. He read all the Puritan works. If you've ever read a Puritan work, they're not light reading. They're hardcore stuff. But he read all those young men, still unbeliever. Still wasn't saved, had huge knowledge of the scriptures. And you'd think, man, all these books on salvation, on the gospel and coming to Christ, all these things, all these things. You think, man, surely one of those Puritan guys, you know, in that gigantic library of his, his grandfather would have slain him. He just read all the books. He was brilliant. He was voracious to learn and he just learned it all. And one day as a teenager, he's cruising along a rainstorms there. He ducks into this barn. And they're having this makeshift service in there. And there's this guy who's not gifted to preach and he's not trained to preach, but he's preaching. And the guy holds up the Bible and says, look to Christ. And that was it, man. That was the arrow. And it just stabbed him through. And he came to Christ right there in the barn. All the preaching from his grandfather, his father, all the church services he went to, the whole library, all the Psalms and hymns of Isaac Watts were just nothing. But man, that one phrase was the phrase God used. And you need to remember that. I mean, when you hear, when you hear testimonies from baptism, it is so fun, isn't it? To hear those testimonies about people coming to Christ. When the Philippian jailer asked Peter after the angel broke him out of jail, you know, what must I do to be saved? Peter didn't say, well, let me take you through the four spiritual laws. Let me take you through the master's, you know, uh, plan of discipleship. Let me take you through, you know, the discipleship evangelism program. Let me take you through the way of the master. Let me take you through. He just said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was good. God used that. He was saved. God saves people because God's sovereign and the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals the truth. Don't ever forget it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that sometimes you blind the truth from people for your good purposes, even us. We know that if we had the truth, we just wouldn't quite get it. And so um, we need your Holy Spirit. The Bible is different than any other book. And Father, we need your assistance to open its truth to our minds so we can understand, so we can believe, so we can apply it, so we can live for your glory. Help us to do that. We pray in Christ's name, amen.